Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. We also just want to say hello to our online viewers. Um, I didn't mention that earlier, but it's great to have you with us. Uh, we got some really close friends who were once part of the CG family here in PE that are now living overseas, and they've really enjoyed watching and being part of the uh, online experience. And, and then there are others that uh, still haven't felt uh, confident or comfortable to come back into, in person, and they're also watching online. And so we send our love and greetings to all of you. All right, so we're in 1 Peter. We're busy going through 1 Peter as a church, and we've just finished uh, chapter 1. And so we're in chapter 2 today. We're going to be dealing with verses 4 through 10. Now, let me show you the amazing wonder of our journey so far. In chapter 1, we could summarize it with these words. Look at these double-barrel words, elect exiles. We saw that in verse 1. Great mercy, you see that in verse 3. Born again, living hope, sober-minded, be holy, fear rightly, love earnestly. And as we go through that, as I went through that, I, I, I could remember each of the moments, you know, each of the points, each of the implications, each of the, the wonderful things that we learned and discovered around each of those terms. And I pray that they become a bit of a framework for you to remember and be stirred in your obedience and in your love and worship for Jesus. Now, as we go into chapter 2, in particular these verses, we find some other words that are equally powerful and maybe a lot more familiar to you because you often find these on a poster or on a coffee mug or on a fridge magnet and they go as following cornerstone living stone or living stones chosen race royal priesthood holy nation marvelous light god's people no doubt you may have memorized this verse 1 peter 2 verse 9 and so we're going to be talking about this today in its context from verse 4 through verse 10. And what we need to first establish is the context Peter, we need to remember, is addressing these thoughts to scattered Christians. The Christians have been scattered because of impending persecution, and they find themselves in very difficult circumstances. They've been counting the cost, haven't they? They've seriously been counting the cost of saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. This is early church. This is around AD 65, and it's the reign of Nero who's now about to unleash his unprecedented persecution. And these Christians are standing and declaring Jesus Christ is Lord, and they refuse to bow to emperor worship. And so they are counting the cost. But as we come to these verses, verses 4 through 10, Peter is not talking to us about the cost of Christianity. He begins to tell us about the privilege of Christianity. He begins to paint a picture of the blessings of being in Christ, of the benefits of being in Christ. And the reason he does this is because he wants to encourage this scattered people. And so he, he uses another analogy. He's been using many, hasn't he? Even in chapter 1, he spoke, speak, spoke about the seed, and he spoke about the, the milk and the baby and, and the infants, and there's all these wonderful analogies. And today he uses another analogy, and that is of a building site. 
And a building site would have been quite a familiar analogy. We, we reckon from history books that, that most people in the ancient world would have been fairly proficient at stone laying, building houses. It would have been a fairly uh, well-developed uh, practice because most of the time you would have to make your own renovations, do your own buildings and structures. And so this building site analogy forms the background of these verses. Further in the background is, in Peter's mind, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In particular, their exile. We know that, obviously, from chapter 1, verse 1. Peter is reflecting on the Israelites when they were in exile in Babylon. And while they were an oppressed people, they were a scattered people, they were a disrupted nation. And at the center of their disappointment was the destruction of the temple. The Babylonians invaded Israel, and the very centerpiece of their lives, the very centerpiece of their culture, the very centerpiece of their worship was destroyed. It was the temple, the temple of God, where the glory of God dwelt. The Babylonians invaded under King Nebuchadnezzar, and they plundered the city, and they destroyed the temple. And so this, this, this forms the background of Peter's mindset. But even furthermore, after the Israelites returned to their land, because this Babylonian exile was, was only to be 70 years, and so 70 years later they return and they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Under the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah. We know that story well, don't we? Particularly in Nehemiah and all of the, the, the participants of how they would rebuild the walls and eventually rebuild the temple. But here's the point. It was never quite the same. The glory of the second temple was not the same as the glory of Solomon's. It was a, a, a shadow of what it was. And so even though they were in their land back it wasn't the same because they were under foreign rule. And even though they had their temple, it wasn't quite the same because the glory of God never filled the temple again. And so there was a deep longing in the people of, of Israel. There was a deep-seated longing for this glorious, restored temple, this glorious, restored nation. And so it's into this context that Peter then begins to say these things. And so let's read from verse 4. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, he's quoting Psalm 118, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble 
because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These verses are packed with Old Testament references. We have references to Exodus. We have references from Deuteronomy, from the Psalms, from Isaiah's prophecy, from Daniel the prophet, from Zechariah and Hosea. Within seven verses, we have seven references from the Old Testament. Furthermore, the very word stone or rock occurs seven times. And for us, the word stone or rock may be seen as an obstacle rather than a blessing. But for these first century Jews, for these first century readers who were steeped in Hebrew scriptures, a stone or a rock would have had deep theological meaning. No doubt this language in this section would have evoked a long-standing conviction that the temple of God in Jerusalem was to be founded upon the rock. And so it was immovable. This was a permanent hope in Israel that God would build his house in the midst of his people and that the glory of God would fill the temple. And so Peter pulls on this meaning. Peter draws in this theological construct and he applies it directly to Jesus Christ and his church. Let's not forget also that in the midst of all of this language about rocks and cornerstones and living stones, who's the one who's saying it? After all, it's Simon Peter. And upon you, Jesus said, the rock, I will build my church. That's fascinating. So let's unpack this. The first thing I want us to ask is this. How does God restore scattered exiles? How, how does God do it? Well, verse 4 is very clear. It tells us, as you come to him, a living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Obviously, it's Jesus Christ as you come to him, to Jesus. He's referring to what's already happened to this church that he's writing to, the elect exiles of the dispersion in all of these northern Turkey regions. He's saying, although you've been scattered, you've all come to one person. You're all in him as you come to him, Jesus. And then he calls him the living stone. Jesus is the living stone. In other words, Jesus is the only way of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. Jesus is, notice he says, God's chosen and precious stone. 
Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the firm foundation. But notice also that Jesus is not received this way by everyone, is he? He says that he's the living stone rejected by men. And so we have a contrast. We have how do believers and God see the living stone and how do unbelievers, how does the world view the living stone? And it's very simple. To God and to believers, Jesus is our chosen cornerstone. To God and believers, Jesus is our precious living stone as you come to him. But to an unbelieving world, the same person that we want to build our lives upon is not for them a cornerstone, but rather a stumbling stone. And so Jesus is really a turning point for all of humanity. For all people from all backgrounds and all races, what will he be to you? Will he be a cornerstone or will he be a stumbling stone? And we see throughout history how this plays out. For many, Jesus, we would agree with God and say he is chosen and precious and he is the cornerstone upon which my life is now built. I'm building my life upon the rock. Not sinking sand. But for others, they build their lives on sinking sand because they've stumbled over Jesus. He's a rock of offense. Let's read it again in verse 7. It says it this way. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble... Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Here's what Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is telling us. He's saying that when the stone came, the living stone, Jesus Christ, when he came, the Jewish leaders of the day were the builders. They were to take this chosen and precious stone, and they were to build upon him their lives and their community. But here's what they did. The builders, the Jewish leaders of the day, and multitudes of others who cried crucify him, they looked at the stone, they turned it over, and they said, it's useless. We have no use For this stone? Who's this imposter? Who does this stone think he is? And they threw him to the side. We don't need this stone. The stone is a a false stone. This is a fake stone. The stone that the builders rejected, however, became the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling. And so they took the stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they decided he was no, of no use in their building project. And so they cast him aside. John 1 affirms this in verse 11 and 12. It says that he came 
to his own. Jesus came to his own people. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Just a few things we need to point out here. Firstly, not everyone is born a child of God. It's impossible to be born a child of God. You need to be born again to be a child of God. You need to have received Christ to be a child of God. Notice he says, and his own people did not receive him. And so there is two layers to the Jewish nation being called the people of God. Yes, to his own people he came, but they did not receive him. And so although they are chosen, they did not receive him. And so they are not children of God. You have to choose Jesus. You have to be a receiver of Jesus to be a child of God. You're not automatically a child of God by virtue of just being born. No, no, no. You have to receive Christ to all who received him, who believed in his name. He gave the privileged right of becoming a child of God. And so Jesus, Peter saying, this precious cornerstone came to his own people, and they rejected him. But but before we get despair, he says, just when you think that their disobedience is ruining God's story, we are told in verse 8 that this was all part of God's sovereign plan. And now we suddenly plunged into the deep end of the theological pool once again. Verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word. There's human responsibility. They were responsible to obey. However, it happened as they were destined to do. The word there is predestined. The sovereignty of God, human responsibility, there's no way around it. If we're going to be in the Bible, there's no way around and thinking this through. We might not fully understand it, and that's okay, but we can't ignore it. But here's what he's saying. Just when you think that that man has suddenly trumped God, you know, like the precious stone is now thrown away and God's plan has just been turned upside down. We've just upended God. I said no to Jesus and I should have been a living stone, but I'm no longer a living stone. And therefore, I messed up God's plan. And God says, that's what you think. Don't worry. It's all happening as it was destined to happen. Here's how John Piper says it. He says, Human unbelief does not frustrate or defeat the ultimate purposes of God. If God plans for Jesus to be the chief cornerstone, humans can betray him, desert him, deny him, mock him, strike him, spit on him, hit him with rods, crown him with thorns, strip him, crucify him, and bury him, but they cannot stop him from being what God destined him to be, the living cornerstone of a great and glorious people. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so what we see is the living stone chosen by God, cast aside, rejected, exiled. Isn't that exactly what happened to him? 
Jesus was exiled from his community. Jesus the Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus rejected by his own people. His own people did not receive him. They cast the stone aside. They rejected him. He was exiled on our behalf so that we elect exiles can be accepted by God. This is the wonder of this gospel story that God restores scattered exiles through the exile of his own son. Isn't that incredible? We need to move on. Point B. What's God's purpose then in restoring exiles? What's the, what's the plan? He takes the rejected stone and he becomes the cornerstone. What for? Here we go. Verse 5. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ there he names him as you come to him verse 4 here he is through Jesus Christ we are here told that Jesus is not only the living stone, the cornerstone, but that you and I, through faith in Jesus, become living stones. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. And so through faith in Christ, who's the cornerstone, you and I individually become living stones. And we are put together into a, change the analogy, a body. But here it is, a temple. We are being built together as a temple, a spiritual house. There is no doubt that this is what he's saying. Why? Because not only are we a spiritual house, but we're a priesthood. It was only the priests who could attend in the temple to be a holy priesthood. And what are we to do? We are to offer spiritual sacrifices. Please note that this is the fulfillment of all future temple prophecies. Jesus said it himself in John 2 verse 19. Destroy this temple, speaking of the temple in Jerusalem, which will happen in AD 70, but he's now saying about his, his own body. He's saying, destroy this temple. They've just been talking about the temple in Jerusalem. And then he says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then they freak out. They go, but it took us hundreds of years to build this temple. How are you going to do it in three days? Because he was talking about his own body. And so the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy shifts from a place in Israel to a person from Israel. The fulfillment of this temple prophecy is the coming together of believing Jews and believing Gentiles who received Christ. Peter being one of the first stones. One of the first living stones. And upon Peter's ministry, the rock of Christ's church will be established. The second thing we see here is that we are being built together to be a spiritual house, a dwelling place. 
God wants to dwell not just in us individually, but in us corporately, through our connectedness. Each one of us are living stones. That means we get to be put together. There's no other way for this temple to be built other than through relationship. Through relationship to God and through relationship to one another, we become a dwelling place. And why is this significant? Well, because precisely the persecution that's about to unfold for these guys, the persecution and the trials and the difficulties they're about to face is going to cause havoc upon them. It's going to force them to scatter even more, but they're going to know that he has the wonder of this, that although the Babylonians destroyed the temple long before Christ, 700 years before he came, and then they got to rebuild the second temple, and then that second temple was destroyed in AD 70, he has the good news. Nobody can destroy this temple. Why? Because it's living stones. And it's built upon a living stone who once was dead but now is alive. And he's now the cornerstone. Do what you like. You can kill us. You can persecute us. You can chop our heads off. But this temple will never be destroyed. This is a living temple. And where is it? Where is this temple you speak of? It's all over the world. It's a universal body temple built on Jesus. Guys, we had no home, but now we have a home. We had no hope, but now we have hope. Imagine how this would have landed for the first century hearers. We are exiles, but we have a home, a spiritual house. We are living stones, and God dwells in us by the Spirit. Come what may, nothing can destroy the church, which is why Jesus said, I will build it. And even the gates of hell cannot destroy it. Because it's no longer brick and mortar and it's no longer a piece of geographical land. It's a universal body. We are a spiritual temple. We are priests in the house of God. Which brings us to the third and final point. What is the identity of this new temple community? Well, he tells us, you, but, the but there is in contrast to verse 8, those who rejected him as they were destined to do, but you who've received Christ, you are a chosen race. Oh, but this is, this is Old Testament language. Yes, this is very, very covenantal language. This is language that God spoke to Israel specifically. And now Peter's applying this language to a Jew and Gentile community. Why? Because he's brought them together in Christ. You now are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You see how it's both been expanded to include all nations but also, notice it's singular. It's not chosen races and holy nations. It's singular. You are a chosen race. Why? Because it's all who are in the cornerstone. All who are built upon the cornerstone. We are one people. One race. All our ethnic divisions. All of our racial tensions. 
pale into insignificance in light of being a believer in Christ. It's not that we lose our identities. Diversity is beautiful. But our unity is primary. Our unity in Christ. We are a single race. We are a chosen race. The word there is the elect. We are an elect people. We are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. This is how God sees us. If you are in Christ, this is your new identity. A people for His own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the language God used for Israel when He called them out of Egypt. Now applied to the people of God, the church. Once you were not a people, He says, Why? Because this is a predominantly Gentile community. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me describe it to you by an analogy and then we'll wrap it up. In our home, when we first bought our home in Glen Dinningvale, um, it was, it was a very old house. I think it was built in about the 1950s. And, uh, and it needed lots of work. And, and Wendy and I really enjoy kind of renovating homes and stuff. And so um, it had one of those single garages that, it's a double-story house, but the single garage was within the framework of the house. So it wasn't an external single garage. It was an, an internal single garage, but it had no door into the house. So I would have to drive the car in, and then get out the car, lock the garage, and then walk all the way around to the side of the house and go through the front door. There was no, no door into the house. But it was within the footprint of the house. So it was under the same roof. I hope that makes sense. But if you come to my house now, that's not there. The single garage is now a kitchen. And you might think, wow, some of you have seen it. If you haven't, you're welcome to come over. Just let us know when you're coming. But it's now a kitchen. And you might say, oh, where was the garage? And I'll say to you, well, it was here in the kitchen. And you're like, no, it's impossible. This wasn't a garage. And I'm like, no, it was a garage. It's now the kitchen. Well, how? Well, the foundation is the same. We just had to raise the floor, close the door, and knock some walls out. And that's what Jesus has done. Jesus has taken a very old foundation, the old covenant, and he didn't get rid of it. No, 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 no. He fulfilled it. He threw a new foundation. He knocked out some walls of separation, and he formed a new people, a new temple. He didn't just destroy it. No, no, no. He fulfilled it in his life and in his death. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Who are God's people? God's people are all who trust in Christ. If you are not trusting in Christ, you are not God's people. You are not the temple of God. And so church, I want to end with this. This is who you are. And when you know who you are, it should inform you as to how you should live. We have a rich heritage as 
Gentiles, we've been grafted into an ancient story so that we could say, once I was called out of darkness and I've been brought into marvelous light. My story is echoing the story of God's ancient people, which was once a garage, but now it's a kitchen. And more people can come and hang out, not just a rusty old car. You see, our identity matters to God, especially when it gets tough. The world out there wants to define your identity for you. The world out there wants you to define your identity either by your status, your power, your money, or lately by your sexuality or your gender. Define your whole life by that. Really? And the answer of the believer is no. We do not shape our identity by our internal feelings or our desires or our physiological realities. Our identity is wrapped up in our relationship to our Creator. He defines our identity. Through, yes, through our personalities, those are important things, but our primary identity, as we see here as believers, is God says to us, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Isn't that interesting? We are priests. We have access to God. Every single one of us. I'm not your priest. As a community, we are living stones, built on the living stone. Jesus is the high priest. We have access to him. Every believer is a priest. The priesthood of believers. If you ever wanted to be part of the royal family, I have good news for you. We are part of the true royal family. This church, this temple is an ever-growing collection of living stones that will fill the earth as the waters covers the sea. Why? Because God's glory dwells in this temple. His glory is not going back to any other temple, I can promise you that. God doesn't move from new covenant fulfillment back to old covenant. The new covenant in his blood has been laid down. He has built a new temple and his glory dwells in this temple. Where Christ dwells, the glory of God dwells. This is an incredible privilege. Like I said in the beginning, Peter is telling us, about our privileged position. I trust you feel the glory of that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible picture, this phenomenal privilege that we have, that we've been grafted in through Christ. We are God's people. Through Christ, we are a holy nation. Through Christ, we are a chosen race. Through Christ, we are priests before our God. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. And it's all because of mercy. 
Lord Jesus, we lift you up today. We lift you up as the cornerstone. We lift you up as the living stone. We, we marvel at you. The last thing we want to do is cast you aside. And so today we are presented with two options. Either Jesus is to us the cornerstone or he is to us a stumbling stone. A rock of joy or a rock of offense. I pray for all of us that Jesus would be to us a rock of joy. But we also pray for those that are still stumbling. We pray for those who are still struggling with this reality that Jesus is God. We pray that you would draw them unto yourself. We pray that they would change their perception. They look at Jesus and they say, he's not precious. God, God says he's precious, but I don't think he's precious. We pray that that would change. We pray for our friends and family who are not building their lives upon Jesus, that they would repent and believe so that they too could be joined to this glorious temple that you are building in all the earth. We ask that you would show them mercy as you showed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we close our service in this beautiful last song together. Thanks.